and it reflected something else that's different about Madeleine Albright. She's willing, or critics say too willing, to send American troops into foreign conflicts. Good morning. I'm Laura Bush, and I'm delivering this week's radio address to kick off a worldwide effort to focus on the brutality against women and children by the Al-Qaeda terrorist network and the regime it supports in Afghanistan. The Taliban have systematically destroyed the rights of women and girls across Afghanistan since seizing power nearly a year ago. The hardline group have mostly excluded females from public life. The lives of Iraqi citizens would improve dramatically if Saddam Hussein were no longer in power, just as the lives of Afghanistan's citizens improved after the Taliban. Public space for our women in Afghanistan has been shrinking. Everything that you would say that was an access to freedom or rights right now has been uh, disabled or has been erased from the society of Afghanistan. Let it be absolutely clear to the Iraqi government that a repetition of its past mistakes will be met by my government with the same resolve as before. When these demands are met, the first and greatest benefit will come to Iraqi men, women, and children. When ISIS gunmen swept across Iraq in 2014, 2014 they came here to this peaceful rural community. They took away thousands of women and girls as sex slaves, and they slaughtered many of the men. The ability of America to marry force and diplomacy is something that is very important to uh, the maintenance of our values. Poetry, a parallel universe. Poetry has no gender but isn't sexless. Poetry is both the dough and the leaven. Poetry, the camera eye of the mind without a shudder. Poetry exists because some men try to put flowers in prison. Any child who can catch a firefly owns poetry. The lyric surge and strife of life is poetry. Did you know that there are arguments to be made that the moon doesn't actually orbit the Earth? They involve a lot of math and rely on a, frankly, nitpicky comparison. But they're there. The logic goes that because the sun has a greater gravitational pull on the moon than the Earth does, the moon is, in reality, orbiting the sun alongside the Earth with our home planet as its closest neighbor, merely running interference. Please don't ask me for more detail than that. I can explain why the rate of profit falls, but not why the moon doesn't. So what could that mean for us then? Well, nothing, obviously, but also quite a lot. Get yourself in the moon's headspace for a second and imagine realizing that you yourself were not bound to a relationship you had thought immutable. Imagine that there were forces in your life with great enough heft that you could use them to break free of your current trajectory, your current situation. Like the celestial bodies that move and exist at each other's mercy, we and our social, economic, and ecological environments dictate each other's trajectories, be they to money, to family, to hobbies, etc. 
the ties that resemble our own personal gravities are far more than simple influences. They're what define our very lives. Superheroes, given the daunting depth of their histories and the utter shallowness of presentation that marketing executives have used to sell them, have become similarly locked into defining relationships. Superman and Lex Luthor, Batman and the Joker, and to a recently growing audience, Ant-Man and the Wasp. These characters are so interlocked by the real-world forces that decide their fates that their fictional versions have, at times, grappled with each other's seeming inescapability within their respective stories. It's a little difficult these days for U.S. citizens to understand, but there used to be a time when we could make radical changes to our lives and the relationships therein without fearing things like bankruptcy, homelessness, or even death. This is especially true for women and children, or rather for people who are not the traditionally male sources of income for a household. Prior to the neoliberalization of the U.S. economy, someone engaged in what is referred to as reproductive labor could more easily apply for government assistance programs like supplemental income for food or for child or elderly care, regardless of their employment status or of the status of the household or situation they were trying to leave. In the past, a parent and child might have more opportunity to leave an abusive breadwinner thanks to those kinds of programs. The care for an elderly family member didn't mean that the whole family was tied to a particular location or a certain kind of employment, no matter how exploitative that employment was, because they could draw on social support programs during any necessary transitions. Our orbits weren't so rigidly defined by our sources of income. The word for this is precarity. People in precarious financial situations are naturally restricted to fewer life choices than those who can afford to change their circumstances. In this way, we can think of income as gravity, and the ways we generate income or the relations in our lives with income we rely upon are like the celestial bodies we as moons must adhere to. There's another similarity, too, between us and the newly hypothetically liberated moon. Even upon realization that the definitions of our relationships have changed, we have to conclude that, for the time being, the relationships themselves have not. What happens when we remain locked in these orbits, deteriorating or otherwise? Can even superheroes pull themselves free? And more pressingly, can we? What worries me is that America's kind of lost its sense of the future right now. The idea is the future is going to be the collapse of empire or the rise of the zombies or something that wipes us all out. Superman's gonna live forever. Superman, as far as I'm concerned, uh, they saved my life. Grim, totalitarian police state in Britain of the unreachably far future, like 1997. Comic book artists were not happy with Warhol or with Mick or any of the pop artists because they said they took our imagery and we got paid page rate. I know this is normally where I delve into a particular team member, and that's what I intend to do, but first we all need to acknowledge something pretty heavy. 
if not wholly relevant to this project. There's a pretty open, if not openly discussed, relationship between the right wing and pedophilia. Now, I have neither the expertise nor the experience to diagnose this, nor to comment any further than, gee, there sure seem to be a lot of news stories about conservatives, and some notable liberals, getting busted for having sexual intentions towards children. But one might imagine that the same brand of sociopathy that allows one to exploit masses of poor labors, i.e. capitalism, may also let one exert one's power over children inappropriately. When we couple this observation with the staggering anti-communism in every Ant-Man story we've discussed so far, we can cast a seriously jaundiced eye on the Wasp's first appearance in Tales to Astonish number 44 way on back in 1963, because it definitely comes up. The issue is technically an Ant-Man tale. It's the first exploration of his backstory, his motivation for becoming Ant-Man, and like the other two Ant-Man stories I mentioned in episode 3, it's got its own streak of anti-communism. It turns out that Hank Pym donned the Ant-Man persona because he and his first wife, Maria Trovaya, decided to honeymoon in Hungary, the country from which Maria and her father had defected some time prior. It's interesting to consider that Ant-Man's first father-in-law was a scientist who escaped the communist bloc to start working for the United States. But I'll just um, paperclip that note to a file folder off to the side somewhere. Anyway, those rotten commies arrest and murder Maria without trial because that's totally how their legal system worked and not at all an absurd mischaracterization. Hank Pym goes on some sort of nebulous criminal rampage that gets him locked up until the American embassy can step in. And once home, he swears his revenge on criminals, injustice, and tyranny. And not to poke too many holes in this, but a weapons-designing vigilante with government funding should probably look in three separate mirrors, each labeled one of those things. Cut to the present day, the present day being 1963, and Ant-Man has decided that, given the number of times he's almost bit the big one, he needs a partner to watch his back. Kind of like when cops are evicting families and someone says mean things to them, so they have to call in another car and beat that person to death with flashlights. A few weeks after coming to this conclusion, Dr. Pym greets an unexpected visitor at his door. A scientist named Dr. Vernon Van Dyne has come seeking his help with a gamma-ray beam experiment meant to peer deep into space. He's also brought along his possibly teenage daughter, Janet, who catches Pym's eye because she looks exactly like a child version of his dead wife. I'll spare you all the weird details, but they're both pretty immediately attracted to each other. Needless to say, that Vernon Van Dyne's experiment goes horribly awry, and a surprisingly forthright, gelatinous space criminal pours out of the portal the scientist has opened. The viscous villain rattles off its evil accomplishments and then murders Dr. Van Dyne. Janet finds the crime scene some time later, while Ant-Man hears about the Uzi offender through the ants, of course. Then he fires himself out of a cannon in the general direction of the dead scientist's lab. He crosses paths with Janet, gives her powers in a most likely highly unethical experimental procedure, and the two team up to defeat the slime scoundrel with a regular gun. The whole thing is very weird, 
and the issue leaves us on a note of pushy sexual tension. But coming from a Janet Van Dyne who's determined to prove to Hank Pym that she's old enough for him. So there you have it. I gotta say, a man hating communists and loving young girls is pretty par for the course. Now, I don't really know the overall dynamic between Ant-Man and the Wasp from then until now. Janet Van Dyne is today known as an elegant, independent woman with real-world power apart from her super ones. She's often portrayed as successful in whatever career she chooses and not at all reliant on Hank Pym, with whom she's not currently involved. Funny enough, Janet Van Dyne's first ever solo ongoing comic book series was just released this month. It's actually pretty good, apart from some more veiled anti-communism. Although I'm still exasperated by the fact that it's exceptional and noteworthy that a female superhero, or character at all, is strong and independent, I will mention that I do like that she's not Ant-Woman or She-Wasp. I love my girl Jen Walters, but She-Hulk is a terrible name for her that should be excised from our collective memory. Names like that still hearken to, and indeed reinforce, that inescapable gravity of the male original in relation to a female counterpart. I nearly died when I saw you in that costume. You could argue that something like Kid Flash or Aqualad is similar, but frankly it's not, and defending such a stance is for dorky losers. Falling neatly in line with our metaphor of the gravitational pull of privatized healthcare, the issue tries to kick us in the gut with a full page illustrating a somber triage in the aftermath of the Hulk's rampage. The hospital has filled beyond capacity, and even the open ceiling welcome area is maxed out with patients and overtime medical professionals. I actually quite like this page. It communicates simply and effectively the consequences of the last issue, and it only shows normal people. No superheroes or shield agents in sight. However, while this page may highlight and elevate the normal masses, it only does so without context. Nowhere in this book, nor indeed any of Miller's work, is there to be found an organized, empowered response to the doings of the ruling class, be they super-powered or super-rich. To go crawling back to comics critic Colin Smith's essay on Miller, as I so often do, the early Miller's quote, indiscriminate depiction of the Thatcher regime reduced even the various members of Miller's working-class cast to the role of helpless and hopeless victims, end quote. Further, quote, Miller's supposedly typical individuals were passive, ignorant, and atomized, end quote. This has not changed. It's not until the next page that we see that, yes, workers wearing helmets emblazoned with S.H.I.E.L.D.'s honestly fascist-looking symbol are among the aid crews, with S.H.I.E.L.D. being the U.S. government's fledgling superhero strike force and response team. And given what we've seen so far of Miller's absolute genuflection to power in this comic, it's easy to imagine that even the single panel that includes a S.H.I.E.L.D. employee is meant to imply that S.H.I.E.L.D. is on the scene and taking charge. We then see a subdued Nick Fury, the leader of S.H.I.E.L.D., and Betty Ross, its head of public relations and separated wife of Bruce Banner, the Hulk, striding past the carnage and into a secured elevator. After a moment of silence in the lift, Betty confides in Nick, quote, You know there's a little part of me feels a tad responsible for all this, General. End quote. 
And to his credit, Miller immediately has Nick Fury respond with the answer that should have been the end of the conversation. Quote, you weren't the one pushing over buildings, Betty, end quote. And that's it. That's all you need. But of course, Miller, with his goofy approach to women, can't just let this one be assured by a colleague and leave it at that. Betty expresses that she believes that her recent behavior is what set Bruce over the edge. And side note, I guess it's not just some random hospital that the issue opened upon, because as she's berating herself for what I would consider absolutely normal behavior, she and Fury are stepping out of the seemingly mundane elevator and into a high-tech sub-basement of some sort. That, as we'll soon see, is currently the holding facility for a beat-to-hell Bruce Banner. While staring at his broken frame through the several layers of glass, Betty says that she's actually a little flattered by Bruce's extreme violent outburst in his attempt to express his love for her. Now, I'm no expert, but this seems like an abusive relationship to me. From what we know of Banner, that he's a jealous partner, a sloppy, impulsive researcher, a petty and unprofessional colleague, and an amoral weapons designer, it's no wonder that Betty left him. She has her own foibles, to be sure. She is the public face of the most powerful vanguard of the most destructive military in the history of the world. Her job is to sell reactionary defenders of capitalist hegemony to a public that is still reeling from terrorist attacks that were the blowback from that capitalist hegemony. I just saw flames inside. You can see the smoke uh, coming out of the, uh, of the tower. Of course, in Miller's world, this might not be a problem. She's a no-nonsense girl boss, after all. Madeleine Albright has been on the job for a few weeks now, and Washington is already used to the idea of addressing the country's top diplomat as Madam Secretary. Madam Secretary. From my perspective, though, let's look at it as a level playing field. Banner's a big piece of shit, and Betty's a big piece of shit. That's a zero sum we can start from. So she's still well within her rights to leave his ass if she's unhappy. To characterize her as feeling troubled and burdened by what's happened as if it were her fault is a classic sexist move. To have her express that she's maybe a little flattered by it seems borderline Stockholm Syndrome. And we should be concerned that Miller includes these relational developments given later events in this issue that they run parallel to. Fury's response to Betty's questionable reaction is, shall we say, staggering, for a couple of reasons. Most prominently, he drops the R word. Quote, yeah, well, my big question is how you and your PR people can spin this debacle into something that doesn't make the Ultimates look like a gaggle of, well, you get the picture. To be fair to Miller, maybe he didn't know that that's unbelievably offensive. After all, the United Nations Conventions on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities wasn't ratified until four years after this comic came out. Of course, it still hasn't been officially recognized by the United States 16 years later. I've read numerous reviews from people who enjoy The Ultimates, even from people who believe it to be a pretty solid takedown of the Bush era. Not one of them mentioned this part of the story, that Nick Fury deliberately broaches the subject of a government cover-up. And I think this might be the case for a couple of reasons. 
One, at face value, this was just a meaningless act of violence. One that just happened to involve the highest echelons of military intelligence and weapons manufacturing. And really, given most people's, probably including Mark Miller's, limited understanding of how the U.S. manufactures crises at home and abroad, there really isn't much to read into it other than that. Bruce Banner, an individual with his own agency and no motivations beyond a paycheck and a failed relationship, made a bad decision. The second is that they probably don't care. Or rather, they don't see it as a problem that should make them care. Most people still fundamentally believe that the U.S. government is a benevolent entity that pursues the betterment of the lives of its citizens. We know from history that this, of course, is not the case. Military intervention has been the watchword of the United States for the last century and a half. From the Spanish-American War to the current death spiral in Ukraine that is causing well-meaning liberals to salivate over nuclear annihilation. I don't need to list all of our meddling here. There are plenty of excellent resources out there. William Bloom's work, The Intervention Podcast, even a basic Wikipedia search if you can stomach a bunch of weasel words. What I would like to talk about here is the use of women in the Imperial Project. Well, see, you're a real gentleman to be helping strangers in distress. I hope you don't mind me using the babe here as bait. Quite a dish, isn't she? But that's what she gets paid for. Bait, that is. Yes, sir. We'll cover this part a little more later in the episode, but it's fair to say that the Empire, much like a certain comic book writer, only cares about women in terms of their usefulness. Let's take a quick look at a before and after of something that was happening when this comic was written. Some of you may remember the extreme propaganda push that the U.S. media foisted upon us leading up to the invasion of Afghanistan. Time magazine published an issue with the face of a woman wearing a hijab on the cover for a cover story called Lifting the Veil, in which it asked the question, without a trace of irony or self-reflection, how much better will Afghanistan's women's lives be after we've invaded? On November 17, 2001, Laura Bush said in the weekly radio address, quote, Afghan women know through hard experience what the rest of the world is discovering. The brutal oppression of women is a central goal of the terrorists. Nine years after this, Time published another cover story featuring the disfigured face of a different woman and the question, what happens if we leave Afghanistan? From an article from In These Times titled, Women Now Run the Military-Industrial Complex, That's Nothing to Celebrate, quote, U.S. military intervention is particularly bad for women. It remains deeply interconnected to sexual and gender violence for people in the military, for military spouses, and for the people living in or near the estimated 1,000 military bases around the world or where U.S. military actions occur. From Japan to the Philippines, local populations have long protested the presence of the U.S. military and the environmental destruction and sexual violence it brings. The impacts of war, such as reduction in basic services, electricity, and access to food and water, 
loss of family members, an increased rate of illness and disability, all increase a woman's vulnerability to assault and worsen the conditions of women's labor. Women are predominantly responsible for caring for sick and disabled people, children and elders, and the conditions for doing that work worsen severely in war conditions. The U.S. military is also the largest polluter in the world. It is difficult to argue that its activities are, quote, good for women when it contributes to climate change and the poisoning of air, water, and land that endangers all people, end quote. While it's much more likely that you'll see pieces fawning over imperialist women simply for being women today than it would have been back in 2001, there were still plenty of imperial role models for Miller to map onto Betty. Let's never forget Madeleine Albright's claim that 500,000 dead Iraqi children were, quote, worth it. We have heard that a half a million children have died. I mean, that's more children than died when, when, in Hiroshima. And, and, you know, is the price worth it? I think this is a very hard choice, but the price is worth it. Price is worth it. Price is worth it. Price is worth Betty it. Betty represents so much of this, and it's clear that her aspects we're supposed to question later on are merely ones of personal proclivity and are not related to her role in the empire. Betty responds to Nick that the PR response to the rampage will be easy. Quote, just hush up that Bruce Banner connection and all your little super people here go down in history as the heroes who saved Manhattan, end quote. And it's pretty much the ultimate propaganda, as it were. The next two pages are the comic book equivalent of a montage. Captain America, Thor, and Iron Man are interviewed in front of backgrounds that serve as the parallel to a newscast's B-roll. Wreckage, rubble, a grievously hurt giant man, and crowds celebrating as only survivors who know they're about to be on TV can. Sharp-eyed readers might be able to pick out a minuscule Captain America raising his hand in the background, presumably before he's interviewed, but it's quite easy to miss. When asked by a reporter how he's feeling, Cap bluntly describes his horrific injuries, but assures her with the sort of good nature that only a bootstrap boy like Steve Rogers can muster that he'll be fine in a day or two. Iron Man explains that he'd have been scared if he hadn't been so drunk during the fight. Exactly what you'd want to hear from a billionaire psychopath piloting a flying robot suit with an entire army's worth of ordnance in it. In a trite display of Thor's shallow characterization, he's smiling and laughing and surrounded by children. And we get it, he's a good guy. If you want a decent laugh, go look at the panel and check out the horrific adult faces on the little kids. The two middle panels on the second page of this spread are Thor and the Wasp, each clearly in separate interviews well after the fact, despite being sandwiched between shots of the immediate aftermath. Thor is castigating Howard Stern for suggesting that he's part of the Ultimates now, and that's Ultimate Celebrity Sighting number 20. He says that helping the Ultimates with this disaster doesn't mean he now approves of Bush or the warmongering. And he proffers an almost good analogy. Quote, by that logic, wouldn't stopping to help an advertising executive with a flat tire mean you've automatically joined Procter & Gamble? End quote. But here's the thing. 
I don't give a shit if he's officially on the team. What I care about is him helping them at all. Which he does. A lot. In fact, that subject gets broached pretty specifically later on in this issue. The Wasp gives us a repeat offender, if you will, because she's on Oprah, who's already been referenced in that lovely fat joke back in episode three. Here's another moment of credit where it's due, though. Her assurances that her husband's ego took a worse beating than his body come across as supremely ominous as the speech bubble leaks over into the large panel at the bottom of the page featuring a bloodied and unconscious Hank Pym surrounded by New York firefighters. On the next page, we cut to the Triskelion, S.H.I.E.L.D.'s flying amphibious fortress slash headquarters. Nick Fury is staring out his office window across the bay to Manhattan. He's on a hands-free call with the Wasp. He gives us celebrity sighting number 21 as he playfully describes Janet's calendar for the day, breakfast with Regis, lunch with the magazine FHM, and then a private dinner at Tony Stark's mansion. He teases her and says it's clear that she's wanted to play celebrities since she was playing with Barbie dolls. In the foreground, we see from some newspapers on Fury's desk that Betty Ross has already been hard at work spinning the tragedy into a victory for the Ultimates. And, again, I can't believe that this is the plot of a book about a team of realistic superheroes we're supposed to admire and cheer for. Over the phone, Janet simply expresses that she's happy for an excuse to get dressed up and go out again. Remember that private shindig she slated to go to at Tony's? Turns out Thor and Captain America will be there as well, much to Nick Fury's surprise. Jan and Nick then discuss how weird it is that after all this time trying to get Thor to join the Ultimates, Nick and Banner never thought to simply invite him to dinner. Apparently, all it takes to get Thor, committed revolutionary, to hobnob with the world's third richest man is to just make some jokes and act friendly. Remember, never once in this book is the word capitalism used. So it's not surprising that Thor doesn't actually stand for anything meaningful. The next scene is mostly fluff for several pages. Thor and Captain America arrive at Tony Stark's mansion to have that dinner with him that was so brilliantly Chekhov'd one whole page ago. Tony greets them at the door and talks about how much fun he had fighting the Hulk. And it's very cool that a dude with so much power in every sense of the word so casually appreciates the thrill of his city being destroyed by a giant man-booger he's in no small way responsible for. I mentioned that it's likely that Stark Industries is going to swoop in and pick up some sweet reconstruction contracts. But it turns out that the comic also directly mentions that Tony is profiting from the attack when he tells Cap and Thor that S.H.I.E.L.D., or some sort of offshoot of it, have sold 15 million DVD copies of the footage of the attack. I guess someone was filming who wasn't the news. Cap asks him if he thinks people would so readily buy the DVD if they knew that the Hulk was associated with S.H.I.E.L.D. Tony tells him, in so many words, that he doesn't care. Tony then asks Captain America, quote, do you really want to kill that feel-good factor over a tiny technicality? To which Captain America replies, no, but I do want to register the fact that I'm really not amused by this, Stark. Great, thank you, Captain. 
duly noted. This is the opposition that Miller includes in the book. He himself claims that this comic is anti-war and anti-Bush's America. But if it were, he wouldn't be having superheroes, people for whom using their abilities to actually change things is their entire reason to be, quibble idly in the face of systemic inertia. This is not subversive. This is not transgressive. This is not meaningful. I don't want the symbol of American exceptionalism to roll over for the poster child of all good billionaires. I want him to represent the values we as children were fooled into believing the United States stood for and to beat the shit out of a man who just made money from the deaths of hundreds of people that he caused. The conversation continues with Tony humble bragging about all the stuff he owns because he's an alcoholic billionaire. He's taken down a peg by his butler, Jarvis. And while I would normally love that a literal servant is mouthing off to his employer, this conversation is just gross and stinks of homophobia. You can read it yourself. It's not worth dignifying. Way on back in season one, I mentioned that I would be exploring the idea of equality as seen through the lens of the privileged in a later episode. I'd like to amend that. There can't just be one episode of a Marxist comic book podcast that might cover such an expansive topic. This episode, however, will certainly try to get that ball rolling. Last season, the hero from the future, Booster Gold, knocked a female supervillain unconscious and stated that, in his time, there's equality of the sexes, so that was okay for him to do. In that instance, we have two writers who probably don't think it's okay for a man to hit a woman, but thought it would be funny to set up a gag where it was. In The Ultimates, we've got a writer who also probably doesn't think it's okay to hit a woman, but is on record saying he was pleased with how, quote, emotionally charged it was to write a scene in which it happens. Let's talk about Mark Miller and his attitude towards women. And I'm gonna give you all a content warning here because although this issue does not contain sexual assault, it does show physical abuse, and we're going to be talking about both. Multiple articles have been written about how frequently Miller employs rape in his comics. He's in the pages of The New Republic saying, quote, the ultimate act that would be the taboo to show how bad some villain is, was to have somebody being raped, you know? I don't really think it matters. It's the same as, like, a decapitation. It's just a horrible act to show that somebody's a bad guy." End quote. Obviously, the whole notion is sickening, but one sentence in his statement is telling in particular. When Miller claims that rape is similar to decapitation, he's demonstrating that he does not understand the nuances of power. Physical domination is a hell of a thing, and violence is violence regardless, yes. But to dismiss that certain violent acts represent microcosmically a larger systemic violence is to be willfully naive, to be ignorant to the point of being part of that larger violence. The careless use of sexual assault against women as a motivator for men 
communicates that, in the creator's eyes, the women are themselves merely tools and not characters. And this translates to a real-world consideration of them as such. I have an idea about why so many men, and oppressors in general, but men here specifically, feel that it's okay to make jokes now. And listen, I know that seems to contraindicate the unhinged screams of male comedians these days, but you have to remember that their reaction to pushback is derived from the very notion I'm about to elaborate on. Men don't understand why it's not okay to make jokes about women or to show women in distress because so many of them believe that full equality has already been achieved. To use a parallel and very simple and crass example, think about shitty white folks asking why it's okay for black people to use the N-word, but not for them to do so. Obviously, both perceptions of full equality are flawed, just totally incorrect. But for the women one at least, it's not difficult to understand why it has arisen. And I hope I've earned enough goodwill with everything I've produced and released so far, but I still want to be very clear that I am in no way justifying nor excusing the abhorrent behavior of so many modern misogynists. Their opinions are wrong, and it is indefensible for these men to continue to hold them. I just have an idea of why they're using this specific rhetoric. Let's start way on back and talk about the term empowerment. It actually has a super interesting history, and one that's particularly useful for us as Marxists. Per the essay, Empowerment, the History of a Key Concept in Contemporary Development Discourse, the pedigree of the word as we know and use it today started with pissed-off feminists in the Global South who were sick of their oppressors' shit. The Western, capitalist rhetoric lamenting the plight of these international women revolved around creating new roles for them within the hierarchies that were oppressing them. At home, we see this manifest eventually in girl bosses like Betty Ross. Abroad, these roles would reinforce the capitalist hierarchy under the guise of developing a country. The term empowerment was adopted and celebrated by women involved in bottom-up movements for national sovereignty, movements that would eschew Western capitalist influence in favor of real self-determination. Empowerment networks like Bangalore's Development Alternatives with Women for a New Era and other similar organizations in South America and Africa were, quote, very critical of the women and development programs instated during the United Nations Decade for Women, end quote, that lasted from 1976 to 1985. They pushed their own arguments for real independence, social and national, not individual and economic. To put a nice bow on it, they understood that as long as their countries were in the orbit of the capitalist West with industrial and financial dependencies, they would never have the chance to be truly free as women. This argument was undermined by a West full of think tanks and nonprofits that were armed to the teeth with PR firms. The message of the international feminist movement was a threat to Western corporations that cared more about the ground those women were standing on 
than it did the women themselves. So the West's propaganda machine began to co-opt the message, and empowerment has been a lasting victim. The rhetoric of female independence coming from Washington was then, and is still, obviously a smokescreen used to justify and even create enthusiasm for meddling in a foreign country's affairs, usually resulting in the destruction of any protective economic measures said country had in order to allow for the plunder of natural resources. I cannot be emphatic enough when I say that all ostensibly progressive rhetoric, all the nice and pretty words that come from Western institutions are in service of justifying resource extraction, all of it. If the U.S. cared about women's rights at all, we'd have universal health care. We'd have abortion on demand. We'd have state-subsidized child care. We'd have income for housework and reproductive labor. We'd have an actually equal society, not just one that pink-tinged credit card ads make us believe is equal. And this is how we've brought the warped empowerment notion home. In the strive to maximize markets and commodify everything we hold dear, capitalists in many cases have pushed a worldview of already achieved or nearly achieved empowerment. In their eyes at least, we are all nothing but customers, and the only meaningful differences are in how they manipulate us into purchasing what they're selling. In fact, although the word empowerment is, as we've stated, so deeply rooted in feminism and anti-imperialism, it has suffered a terrible fate. In his book, Keywords, The New Language of Capitalism, which I can't recommend enough, John Patrick Leary states the following, quote, empowerment has been largely defanged as a term of oppositional politics, as it has become a popular marketing slogan for both consumer products and politicians. The empowerment brand is aimed especially at women, where it signifies a feminism aligned with women's individual material success, end quote. Capital exploits the oppression of women, and all marginalized peoples, of course, by selling a false sense of empowerment to them. For my first illusion this evening, I intend to create a woman. But I warn you, she will not be made of sugar and spice and all things nice as the nursery rhyme goes. I prefer the rather more detached view of the scientist. Advertising that conveniently synchronizes the expression of equality with the symbolism of the brand floods the airwaves and latches onto the brain like a parasite. In the December 2018 issue of Women's Health Victoria, subtitled Advertising Inequality, and the N is in parentheses there because it's clever, the data presented suggests that, quote, realistic portrayals of women in ads increased purchasing intent by 26% among all consumers and 45% among women. I prefer the rather more detached view of the scientists. People yearn to be equal and capital very clearly knows how to make them think buying things can achieve that. Ensconced in this, surrounded by this, one might be fooled into believing it. Despite the obvious inequalities, such as different wages or salaries for the same work, or the imbalance of domestic violence, 
or even the often overlooked fact that the majority of gendered English epithets are traditionally associated with women or femme-presenting folks, people who don't experience those forms of oppression are fed a commercialized, egalitarian narrative. I guess this is all a long-winded way of saying that I think that toxic, incurious dudes see advertising that makes them think women are already empowered, or that women only have to buy pink razor blades to be so. So when they hear people advocate for actual empowerment, they dismiss such calls to action and demonize the people making them. And this brings us all down. Of course, there are also just shitty dudes who hate women, so there's that to contend with as well. We can also look a little closer to home for Mark Miller. In one of a series of short pieces for The Guardian in 2018, writer and lawyer Afua Hirsch comments in her article titled As a 1990s Teenager, The World Gave Us Girl Power and Pornification that the 90s, the decade in which Mark Miller cut his teeth, I might add, was a contradictory time of hypersexualized superwomen on TV. In the following piece, titled From Blair's Babes to TV Ladettes, the 2000s was the Emperor's New Clothes Era of Feminism, journalist Francis Ryan describes the turn of the millennium as, quote, an era of the Emperor's New Clothes. There was the illusion that women's equality had already been achieved, but sexism was still rampant, end quote. Given that Mark Miller seems to be the chief among those who assume that there is a parity of violence between men and women, the following segment is, unfortunately, as unsurprising as it is shocking. It's going to be rough, and I apologize in advance for what I'm about to describe. Miller himself claims, in the back of this very volume no less, quote, It might sound insensitive to say that I enjoyed writing the wife-beating issue. But it was so emotionally charged, it all came together very easily and quickly. End quote. This doesn't sound to me like a writer who understands what he's written. Forget emotionally charged. The following scene is more accurately described as an emotional depth charge that Miller deploys with no regard for those it might affect. Jan is ready to leave for the shindig at the Stark Mansion and she's frustrated that Hank is working right up to when they're supposed to leave. She hates that he can't get out of the work headspace when he does that, which, on a personal level, I understand. But you know what I do when I can't get out of a work headspace? Not what's about to happen. Hank tells Jan that he's probably just going to skip the get-together and finish the updates to his Ant-Man helmet that Tony Stark is expecting. Jan deduces that Hank is upset by how easily he was bested by the Hulk in the last issue. She tells him that he was very brave back there, which is the truth. It takes guts to fight the physically strongest being on the planet, and getting your ass kicked in just a few hits is still better than getting killed in one. In a panel at the bottom of the page, made unexpectedly more chilling by how small and tight and understated it is, Hank Pym deliberately half ignores the loving fingers on his shoulder, and warns Jan not to patronize him. He then accuses her of dressing enticingly for either Iron Man or Captain America. After she admonishes him, he reminds her that there's a picture of her with, quote, her tongue down Captain America's throat in every newspaper in the world, end quote. And for the life of me, I have no idea what he's talking about because that's not in the fucking comic. Did that happen in a different Ultimate Marvel? Am I just missing something completely obvious? 
If you know, please email the show and I'll give you a shout out on the next episode. Hank then menaces Jan by assuring her that Steve Rogers wouldn't be flirting with her if he knew what she was. When she pushes back, we get the big reveal that I hinted at in episode one. Asian? No. A molecular biologist? No. Hank turns around and growls that it's because she's a mutant, you idiot. Turning the page, we can tell from Jan's body language that that one hurt. But Hank's not done. He needles and prods her by continuing, quote, I wonder if he'd still have the hots for you if he saw you eating caterpillars and beetles or hiding in your little nest when all the mutant hysteria was going on a while back. These are words chosen to hurt, to cut deep, and Hank drives it home by claiming that the particularities of her mutation make him sick to live with. She fires back by saying that she didn't hear him complaining that all of her mutant powers have been the secret catalyst behind his scientific and career success. He accuses her of belittling him and not believing in him. She rightly responds by being exasperated that his genius in cybernetics apparently isn't enough for him, that he has to be the world authority on other subjects as well. She challenges him to produce super soldiers that don't involve powers he's already mastered namely size change and communication with ants. And then she gets him where it hurts. She tells him Bruce Banner is twice the geneticist he'll ever be. With the heel of his hand, Hank Pym cracks Janet across the jaw. You can even see the blood flying from her lip. Hank immediately regrets what he's done and tries to apologize, but Jan, not having it, elbows him in the face and then clocks him with some sort of oscilloscope-looking box that was on his desk. Before we're shown the rest of the fight, the comic yanks us back to the dinner party across town. But prior to getting into that, I want to talk a little bit more about orbits and gravity. This isn't the first time in comics history that Hank Pym has beaten his wife. In August of 1981, Avengers number 212 dropped on shelves everywhere. And in its pages, Pym, then donning the mantle of Yellow Jacket instead of Ant-Man or Giant-Man, punched his wife in yet another moment of frustration at his work and at his life in general. Pym is now infamous for this, and it's very probably why the Scott Lang version of Ant-Man was chosen for the MCU instead of this one, simply to avoid any sort of lascivious or untoward speculation, or, even more simply, to avoid having to address it at all. But according to Jim Shooter, a curmudgeonly comics legend who was writing the Avengers book at the time, Hank Pym was never supposed to be a wife-beater. Per a blog post Shooter made in 2011, his 1981 script called for Pym to accidentally smack Jan in the process of throwing his hands up in exasperation. The story Shooter tells is that the artist, Bob Hall, misinterpreted what was intended and, quote, turned it into a right cross. There apparently wasn't enough time left before release to fix it, so history was set in motion. So there you have it, gravity and orbit, right? One miscommunication and a foundational character to an internationally mega-popular fictional team now has an inescapable flaw, and his equally seminal partner can never be separated from the abuse everyone knows she endured. A scar on a relationship that may never be allowed to heal. Now, you can believe Shooter, or you cannot. I, I don't really care. What I do care about is that 
when given the opportunity to not include the ostensibly accidental flaw in Hank Pym's character, Mark Miller chose to do so anyway. This really layers our gravity metaphor when you think about it. The body that is Hank, the body that is Jan, they get forced into each other's orbits forever by male creators who damned them, apparently by accident, to an eternity of violence both within and without their relationship by the sheer force of passive expectation. And this dynamic of gendered violence in the real world outside of comic books is so ingrained in U.S. culture, cemented to the point of being considered inevitable and realistic, that when a writer has the once-in-a-lifetime chance to mend it, to make it nicer, better, less sickening to the core, he does not do so, even knowing full well that he is writing a story that he hopes will be the blueprint for a massive cinematic franchise to be seen and digested by millions. Because Mark Miller, for all his love of them, does not care that he is writing superheroes and that superheroes outside of their fictional stories are, in fact, aspirational. They can save us and they can hurt us. And I, for one, refuse to accept that flaws are inescapable. We can be better, and the stories we tell can reflect that. To his credit, Brian Hitch claims in the previously mentioned interview at the back of the collected volume that this was his least favorite scene to draw. He follows that up by saying that he loves Miller's writing on it and that the reason he doesn't personally like the scene is that he feels he didn't hit the emotional marks he could have. I suppose that's fair, but it's unclear whether he meant that he wanted to hurt us more or to represent the hurt that he felt from it. And I know which I'd be more forgiving of. And now we're back at Tony Stark's mansion to find the current guests at the dinner table. With his usual bluntness, Tony asks Thor if Thor really believes that he is the son of Odin. Thor replies that he's known since he was 12 years old, but that it wasn't until his recent mental breakdown that everything became clear. He says that he was sent by Odin in Valhalla to purify the Earth again. This gives Captain America cause for pause, and he asks Thor if he thinks the Earth really needs to be purified. Thor basically says yes because the world is being bled dry while we all watch reality television and play PlayStation 2. Tony asks Thor if he thinks joining the Ultimates could provide him with a useful platform for spreading that message. And again, Thor says exactly what he should say. He says, quote, Joining the Ultimates would be condoning every reprehensible action taken by the wretched military-industrial complex who pay your wages, Tony. End quote. And that's good. That's a good answer. But that's all it is. It's just words with no action and no deeper consideration behind them. He follows that up by a frankly trite refutation of the celebrity lifestyle offered to him as part of his compensation for joining the team. He mentions not wanting to work for the, quote, ruling class, and I want to touch on that briefly. This is a man who's apparently made a fortune off self-help books. Self-help books are, by their very nature, individualistic. Let alone the fact that they're necessarily published within a structure that still funnels profit upward, the content of self-help books 
definitionally atomizes social problems in ways that they purport can be solved on one's own. You won't be safe until the money is in our hands. Hence the very existence of a self-help book. Anyone serious about societal change understands fundamentally that this cannot be enacted on an individual level. So when Thor speaks here of a corrupt ruling class, I can't take him seriously as he, a corporate self-help shill, doesn't seem to know what the fuck a class is. And to punctuate this utter entanglement of disease and symptom, he follows up with, quote, I'm just a phone call away if there's a genuine problem which threatens people's lives. Motherfucker, you just stopped the genuine problem that ended people's lives, that these guys created. And that's just the immediate dangers that these capitalist morons pose. There's also the fact that they represent and enforce, as Thor just pointed out, the genuine threat of the ruling class. This is so incoherent that it's laughable. But unfortunately, I'm not the only one laughing. Captain America responds by smiling and saying, that just means we get you for free, soldier. And you can see Thor smiling and nodding appreciatively at the joke. It's clear that Miller is trying to take us on a roller coaster here. Because after that joke, we cut back to the fight between Jan and Hank. She bites him. He yanks her head back by her hair. She shrinks and he yells, hey, come on, no powers. As she's barraging him with wasp stings, he dives and manages to get to a conveniently proximal can of bug repellent. He blasts her miniature form with the toxic spray and assumes that it must feel like napalm to her. Not a great callback considering that napalm is famous for being used on communists. Jan, still small, retreats under the desk. Hank menaces her again, and she apologizes and begs him not to hurt her anymore. A now fully enraged Hank mocks her cries for help as he dons the Ant-Man helmet he had just been working on. He then commands a swarm of ants that are the size of large dogs relative to the shrunken Jan to attack her. His face fills the bottom panel, and he tells her that she shouldn't have made him look small. The next part of the dinner party is so much nothing that it almost doesn't bear describing. Thor asks Tony why he's part of the Ultimates. He gets a pretty good jab in when he asks if it's because it qualifies Tony for a tax dodge, but Tony denies that. Steve thinks it's something to do with girls, but he's shot down as well. Tony explains to them that he does it because he has between six months and five years to live. He has an inoperable brain tumor. He then says that that explains his donations to charity and his commitment to making the world a better place. As if the $350 billion in his portfolio weren't a direct cause of the problems he thinks making a flying gun onesie will solve. After killing the jovial mood, Tony decides it's time to wheel out a present he found for Captain America. Tony presents Steve with the helmet Steve wore back in World War II. It's actually a pretty nice moment that I have to begrudgingly appreciate. Of course, it leads us to the final page, where we see Hank Pym slumped on the floor, clutching the Ant-Man helmet and surrounded by papers, pills, and bug spray. He says, oh my God, Jan, what have I done? Which means we finish the first storyline of the Ultimates like this. 
A die-hard soldier has assembled a team of warhawks, weapons designers, and corporate profiteers to defend the world against whatever terrors might try to upend the system that gave these monsters power in the first place. The only person with the apparent moral strength to stand up to this very literally fascist organization is a previously institutionalized leftist who's now clinking glasses with this organization's two most publicly prominent members. The man who kickstarted the program is quietly locked away for killing people as a PR stunt for the team. And its head researcher has just beaten his wife and colleague nearly to death using power that he gained almost exclusively by exploiting her body and her labor. On every level, we have the orbit of empire, the push and pull of capital, and the evil of the crimes committed in their names. And these are the good guys who are going to win in the end. We hope all is well out there in Listenerland. As we at Collective Action Comics are wont to say, boy howdy, it's been a wild ride. As we hunker down over the tape player to muse over the mysterious cassette we recently received, we'd like to assure you that the socialist project is alive and well. Even now, plans are being made for a daring rescue of our beloved comrade Bud. On a lighter note, we're all looking forward to a splendid performance of revolutionary songs and dances by our local youth brigade. I'm sure whatever they're working on will be fantastic, inspiring, and not at all destructive to studio property. Before we adjourn to an evening of music and fun, we'd like to thank the following new patrons. Thank you to George K, Blackface Bogart, and Shane Shack. Don't forget, you yourself can ensure that Collective Action Comics will be around for as long as possible by signing up for our Patreon. Any of the four tiers will get your name on the radio. You can email the show at collectiveactioncomics at gmail.com and follow us on Instagram at collectiveactioncomics or on Twitter at CAComicsPod. That's comics with an X. And as always, tune in next time for the next thrilling installment of Collective Action Comics!